0: and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started.
1: My name is Adam Homie. I am your host. I am on once again the by your wise show. decision to tune Check in. Check out our and
0: previous and upcoming all today. episodes on but our this website at www. dot businessfairdriverradioshow. dot com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to your favorite network to get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. Bring you closer to your intersection
1: of your brilliance and your passion. I come to you from Las Vegas, my on the balcony of my sumptuous apartment. Here in what some call the hottest city in America on some days. As you listen in to today, you may occasionally hear some background noises. We're pretty close to the airport. Uh, the strip is about four miles away. So if they're throwing a concert, that might come through. Uh, we're at a point right now where some of the uh, children in the community are enjoying a very pleasant evening outside. So if you hear the jocularity of the children's uh, friendly screeches, just know that we're in the real world. Now, that, and there's one right now. I'm not sure all my noise cancellation is doing. At any rate, I love the conversations we have here because we get to take this places that most business podcasts do not. When this person came to my notice, when they were introduced to me a few weeks ago, I was struck by a word that they used, entrepreneurship. And then I saw the development of it, how to progress in toxic cultures. Now, I love inventing words that create new meanings, and I believe that might have been what happened here. We'll find out. And having been in toxic cultures before, in fact, I wrote about one in my contribution to Journeys to Success, the Millennial Edition. These are things that are close to my brilliance and my passion. So let's introduce today's guest. His name is Luis Baez. He is a revenue enablement strategist and sales coach dedicated to serving executives and sales leaders at businesses. So he has quite a story that he's going to tell us about. He's worked with some of the big Silicon Valley startups, and there were some lessons there. But today, he's the global director of revenue enablement at Deputy, which is a SaaS workforce management production company, not to mention a published author the internationally recognized Madecraft organization, which includes an incredibly popular LinkedIn learning course on personalized sales that has been taken by over 15,000 people to date. All right, I'm sold already. Luis Baez, come on in. The weather's fine.
2: (laughs) Thank you so very much, Adam. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and your
1: audience. I read off part of the official bio, and I mentioned that I teased a bit of it because I'm going to let you say it in your own words because I think you'll say it better than I can. (laughs) But what we like to do here before we get into the topic, and we're going to cover entrepreneurship, uh, toxic cultures, and possibly some other topics depending on where our conversation goes. First, let's pull back the curtain and tell us in your own words a bit about your journey and what has brought you here today serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion.
2: Well, I appreciate that. So I am someone who grew up in poverty and did not accept that reality. And I worked really hard as someone who is first generation, an out gay man, Puerto Rican. Uh-huh. Um, I you know, stepped into the corporate world, not really knowing what I was getting myself into, but very confident in my capacity to sell myself. And so I developed a career in corporate sales, starting in advertising sales and onto tech and software sales, um, as well as luxury vehicle for a quick moment. Um, and uh and I ran, you know, and I had an opportunity to the West Coast from living in New York City all my life, uh, shifted over to Silicon Valley where the moving and the shaking was happening. I ended up being recruited at LinkedIn, Google, Uber, and Tesla, um beyond my wildest dreams. And I got to step into enterprise sales, doing multi-million dollar deals. I got to lead a team into multi-million dollar success. Um, and in that vein of wanting to figure out how do I give back or how do I contribute or how do I make a bigger impact beyond just my individual contribution, I ended up falling into sales coaching and training and enablement. And in that vein, I also started to think about, well, how can I also leverage everything that I've learned working at these bigger companies and spread that gospel and, you know, help other businesses learn how to operate and be efficient and help other leaders sort of lead with that same servant leader and compassionate leader and authentic leadership sort of examples that I ended up having in my career. Um, And so that's how I ended up down this path. And ultimately at this conversation today, it was really from an intention of taking everything that I've learned and passing it on to the next person.
1: Wow. So what we want to do first is define our terms. I think that's going to be a great place to start. Uh, Intrapreneur, Mm -hmm. I-N-T-R-A-P-R-E-N-E-U-R. As I mentioned, I love when people create new portmanteaus and create new words with new meanings. I believe that language is a living thing, regardless of which language you speak or languages you speak. And so tell me what an entrepreneur is and why do we need to know this?
2: Yeah, I I can't take credit for the word. I don't know that I was the one that came up with it, but it was certainly something that popped into my mind and led to a Google rabbit hole and and then the work that I ended up doing thereafter. Um, But I had an experience where I reached a point in my career where I wasn't really getting what I needed or wanted intellectually from the job that I had at the time. And I started to get taps on my shoulder uh, to help other people and other businesses with the sort of background and experience and knowledge that I had. And I ended up falling into accidental entrepreneurship. Uh And I eventually, when I needed to stepped away from full-time corporate and stepped into full time entrepreneurship. And it was when I was in the thick of that experience that I had the aha moment of, you know, I didn't realize how good I had at working in sales all those years And someone else was taking care of the marketing. Someone else was handling the operations and the overhead, right? I was just focused on the customer and I was walking away with commissions. And it clicked for me that a lot of the skills, ethic, mindset, and everything that I brought into my entrepreneurial experience really came from being an entrepreneur within a company and having worked in sales. Having been part of founding sales forces at companies, building new territories, new verticals, new relationships, um, you know, building from the ground up. And that is something that really when I stepped back into corporate, um, I carried with me that shift in mindset. And when I stepped into leading and training and coaching other teams, I shifted my approach and in teaching entrepreneurship and teaching that self-accountability self-motivation and sense of ownership in a business um, to help to drive performance and so that is the the work that I started doing really as of like the last five years
1: yeah well I'm gonna date myself a little bit so uh, I uh, was born in 1976 so <laughs> think of me as, uh, as I like to describe it, I'm basically a millennial. I just got there a couple years later, uh, so uh, and I'm what uh, has been defined as essentially a cusp. I'm right on the bottom edge of Gen X uh, as we move into millennial. And another way I describe it is, I got my email in college instead of high school. So, <laughs> but but the experience overall was relatively. Similar And people of my age and when we go into millennials and such, we began to see a culture shift that became more apparent to me in retrospect is that the old command and control structure that we would see in companies that to me led to a certain level of toxicity was still very much in power, but it was beginning to see its end. And I believe that what has helped to accelerate that is that we are the first generation that had consistent access to high-speed internet on reliable machines at a point where search engines became very well-versed with a lot of valuable data and the technology emerged for online communities to emerge where we could gain support. This is something not been available to those who came before us. Mm -hmm. And that gave us a framework to be able to ask the questions that we didn't even know that there were questions about to seek different answers. So when I hear this stuff about these lazy millennials, like, please, please, please no more of the trope. I mean, go to TVTropes.com If you want a trope, but, uh, and see, I'm talking, I'm talking like a millennial. I'm using these types of, uh, early internet references. (laughs) So, uh, so, but, but the point being is I've, I know a lot of millennials, um, I don't know any lazy millennials personally. I I know that people who work in companies and people who own companies, people who start companies, you have the same mix of motivation, lack of motivation, focus, lack of focus, because that's a human condition. But as far as laziness, I don't see a lot of that. What I simply see are folks who want to feel that the work that they do makes a difference. They want to feel that the time that they spend in that office or assigned to that client or in the employment in that company is something that makes them feel like they're creating value, that they're doing stuff that's going to make the company, the the business, the world a better place. And they simply are looking for the opportunity to express that and have the chance to have their views seen at the table. Absolutely. And that's where I think that's where I think this entrepreneur thing becomes an interesting way to put a word on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think where I my perspective on it also, or the way that I sort of arrived at this sense of like accountability and ownership in a business is also because of my background in tech. You know, there's the allure of working in tech because, uh, yes, the, the salaries are higher. Uh, The work culture is unconventional, right? And Uh you're not wearing a suit and tie. You can bring your dog to work. Um, You know, you used to get free lunches before the pandemic and all this jazz, Uh right? Um, And part of the way that they also incentivize tech workers is to offer them equity in the company. And so I came to terms with the fact, you know, as I developed my financial literacy and my own confidence as a professional, I came to terms with the fact that like, y'all are literally giving me ownership in this company which means that I'm a boss here. And what happens when you start showing up like a boss instead of an intern, right? You start to speak up. You start to hold yourself accountable. You start to project manage and negotiate and communicate on a a much different level when you know that, The more effort you put in and the more effort that's invested in that sort of culture, the more Uh value you're bringing to shareholders and the more value you're bringing to yourself as an owner in the business. So there's that direct correlation between, you know, that sort of output and and the gain. Um, And that was something that I wasn't really taught as someone who was first generation grew up in poverty. And certainly when I first started in tech, didn't provide any sort of financial literacy or anything around that. Um, And so that's, that was also, I think that's an important sort of component around, you know, how I developed this sort of fluency around entrepreneurship.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, and to me, it's just about the idea of a way to counter the whole command and control structure. I, I mean, the first company I worked for uh, was actually so bad that I celebrate the day that I was fired as my second birthday, April 27th. And the reason is because it felt like a rebirth because I discovered two things that turned out to not be the case that I've been told uh, all my years growing up that uh, if you leave a job without having another job lined up, that's essentially the end of your career Mm -hmm. And if you get fired from a job, you better wonder if you're ever going to get another job again, because everybody's going to know. And I found out very quickly that neither of those things in the real world are actually the case.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Those things don't matter anymore. And, um, you know, it used to be that you would stay with the company 5, 10, 15 years Uh or just through retirement um, and now, you know, the average sort of tenure of a tech worker, for example, is 18 months with the company, and no one frowns around, you know, at someone moving around. Um, it's actually expected that, you know, there is this sort of cross pollination that happens, so that businesses don't grow stale in their thinking.
1: Well, here's here's another here's another insight. So after I got fired from that job, it was as I said, April 27th. I quickly I, I quickly took, got a temp assignment. And I was not able to complete the temp assignment. In fact, they let me go from it. The reason being is I was getting so many interviews that I could not guarantee that I could be there because the nature of being a temporary worker, particularly in office environments, is that you get reasonable flexibility to go to interviews for full-time jobs. But they weren't counting on me having an interview with a potential full-time employer literally every single day of the week, sometimes twice in one day. Hmm. So for this temp assignment, I was uh, pretty much just—I was pretty much just showing up and uh, doing like two hours worth of work. So I ended up getting a permanent job that lasted six days, and by mutual agreement, uh, me and the owner of that company uh, just kind of agreed to sort of pretend it never happened, because we both recognized very quickly it was just a really bad fit, and I didn't belong there. And I and I respect her for that. So, at this point, we're getting up to Memorial Day, and I figure, you know, I have been driven and busting my ass my entire life. In the fall, I'm going to go get my MBA. In fact, I had already applied and had been accepted to Duquesne University in Pittsburgh and accepted the invitation, so I knew beginning September I was going for my MBA. So, what do I got? June, July, August. I'm going to go pick up some manual labor jobs, make some cash. And I'm gonna have some fun with my life because damn it, I deserve it. You know the funny thing is uh, in within the within the context of an employment situation, nobody ever made any assumption about that. And I didn't e- and I didn't even uh, dress up my resume. I just left the gap there. No one ever questioned it because we were already seeing a change away from those two tropes that I described earlier. Now, fast forward to 2003 after I complete the MBA and I'm doing my usual get your MBA level job interviewing and networking. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I also started a side hustle that ultimately evolved into my full time entrepreneurial venture. But I was speaking with somebody one day, a friend of mine, and, you know, he just he said, you know, not for nothing, but you got that job that you've had when you first started the MBA. And I said, yep, March 2001. He said, well, it's June 2003. How much longer are you going to sit there? <laughs> like, what do, you, what do you mean? It's like, you've been there two and a half years. You've got your MBA. You you sit there much longer. And prospective employers, even clients, if you start a business, they're going to say, what, isn't this guy motivated? Doesn't he, doesn't he have any ambition? Isn't he on the move? Uh, doesn't anybody want to hire him? You got to get your ass out of there like now. Now, it took me another two years to get out of there. Uh, the reason being is I did go ahead with the side hustle and I was essentially doing it without any infusion of capital. So, you know, ox, cart and a horse. <laughs> and also because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't know what questions to ask. If I had no, if I had had more of a picture back then, two years would have been two months. I'd have been, see ya. <laughs> and that's, that's actually why I do what I do, because I want to help people not sit somewhere for two years when they could get it done in two months. And that's really what intrigues me about entrepreneurship It's just yeah. this, this cultural driver that, and I told these stories because I just wanted to share with you, Luis, and also with our listeners, yeah. why this resonated with me so much when I saw it in the application.
2: Yeah. I think the wonderful thing also is as I've stepped into businesses, either in, you know, an executive capacity or consultant capacity um, to, help them develop their own entrepreneurial frameworks. Um, I just love to see the way that the culture shifts, the way that the collaboration is elevated. I love that people feel a better sort of connection to the business and the mission and the purpose when everyone is, you know, in that sort of zone and in that uh, sort of work ethic and mentality. Um, And I think that, you know, part of the importance in thinking about retention, which is something that you're touching on as well, is like, you know, people don't really quit jobs. They quit leaders. They quit toxic cultures. They quit environments where they aren't seen, heard, or understood or enabled. Um, And so if you can get ahead of those things um, and, you know, invest in your people and in helping them be better decision makers and communicators and collaborators, Um, that helps your bottom line as a business on, you know, several folds. Um, But I have to say, I've experienced also being in a culture, um, you know, and experiencing what it's like to be in a well-oiled machine and to be in the sort of best in class uh, sort of work environment. Um, And it's my desire for everyone to experience that and, and to make that the status quo.
1: I fully, I fully agree with that. And again, you, know, you know, your millennials, your Gen Zers and all that, not lazy people at all. They just don't, you know, and I don't see the value of the kind of structure of, well, you have to be here from nine to five Monday through Friday, take your mandatory hour and your two 15-minute breaks and always answer your phone extension on the third ring. And uh, we're at a place where major corporations, Coca-Cola is one example that I can think of right now, are in the process of doing away with voicemail. Oh. Even as even as we speak, I'm in the process of transitioning my business's phone systems to a much simpler one, uh, partially out of optimizing costs, which is always a smart thing. But partially because other than my mom, no one ever calls. Mm-hmm. You, know how, you know how people speak with me as they go to my website, www.schedulewithadam.com and book themselves in without even checking with me as <laughs> I because I work with people who like that level of structure. And I work best with people who appreciate that structure. So, I mean, I get, I get things all the time, uh, coming through schedule with Adam.com. It's like, okay, uh, I didn't know you want to speak with me. So I ended up adding a field to it that says in a nice way, okay, so you're booking the call. What do you want? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's important for all parties to really have that moment of qualification, right? Because You know, you have to walk into a conversation understanding, you know, what's the best way that you can serve that person as a business owner. And then that other person needs to feel confident that they're being heard and understood. And I think that applying that filter on the onset is a way of listening and Uh definitely would blend to a smoother customer experience.
1: Absolutely. So I am with you 100%. So what I want to do now is I want to pivot the conversation here. And in order for entrepreneurship to work, it's great that the employee goes in with the entrepreneurial spirit, but that's really only going to be effective when you have great management. So in your view, what makes a great manager and why is this important?
2: Yeah. <sighs> okay. So in order to really sustain a high-performance culture um, that is also highly collaborative where everyone is self motivated and very much aligned with the goals and and the needs of the business you have to have really strong strategy and leadership in place there have to be examples of entrepreneurship celebrations of the right behaviors and the right outcomes relative to entrepreneurship and there has to be a commitment first and foremost in the development of the leaders and the champions of that culture there has to be a commitment to developing leadership, not only in their intellectual capacity and their emotional capacity. We often talk about IQ and EQ when we're assessing, you know, the right fit, right? But then there's also this element of cultural intelligence. And that's that uh, intelligence to be able to facilitate productive conversations with people of different backgrounds and different perspectives, and to be able to bring them all to the table in, and align them towards that same outcome, that's also a matter of being, you know, really attuned to the psychological safety of those people who are on the front lines of a business, who are engaging with the public and facing customers. Um, you know, making sure that they're also uh, seen, heard, and understood in those instances where there is friction in the customer interaction, because inevitably. Mm-hmm. Your reps are going to be up against some really terrible people and some really foul attitudes. And so, you know, you have to be uh, attuned to all of that and be able to help navigate and facilitate those moments and, and even mediate. And so um, there has to be that investment at the leadership level. Um, as much as there is sort of the establishment of those expectations of your reps, right, and um, and I think that's the critical point where most businesses aren't willing to invest. They want the you know silver bullet or the magic hack to just get their people being more productive and making more money, um, but there needs to be structural investments to make that happen.
1: Yeah, and I and I and the, tell me more about the structural. Investments that yeah. that really intrigues me.
2: Yeah. So, in addition to thinking about investing in leadership development and coaching, I think there also needs to be a set of like tools in place to track performance, to celebrate performance. Mm-hmm. And so, when I think about sales organizations in particular, things like leaderboards, competitions, looking to gamify things, um, even thinking about what how it is that people are celebrated. Um, how people are tapped on to be subject matter experts, to lead campaigns or launches, or to be the go-to person when there needs to be training. Um, All of that, all of those sort of processes and structures and tooling, that all lends itself to that successful, sustainable, performance-driven entrepreneurial culture that people want. Um, And it is, you know, something that It sounds quite lofty and expensive, but it doesn't have to be. It needs to be intentional and consistent. If all you've got Mm -hmm. is Google Docs and Google Sheets, you can still make all this happen. Um, But certainly, if you're in a position to invest in software and tooling to help you with your revenue operations, then it's definitely not a bad investment to make.
1: Yeah, let me... uh a couple things in what you just said. Gamification, I think is huge mm-hmm. because think about, cause think about another thing that people of our age, you know, your age and my age, uh, were raised on video games. So yeah. we did some of our early learning through video games. And as an adults, we go back and look at how some of these games were structured and we're finding out that there were actually lessons embedded within those games. Oh. Like it looked like Pac-Man was going around the maze, just eating up the pellets, but there was a lesson there. Uh, you know if you know for early nintendo adopters uh you know playing super mario brothers there were lessons in there too there were lessons in the game contra which uh, you know people my age certainly remember it was extremely popular uh the boxing games et cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. so gamification i think is huge now uh our listeners know that i sometimes use uh use pop culture references or things that seem like they're outside of the conversation but Mm. they make sense and they also know that I don't get political here but I do sometimes use social issues with illustrating points. So let's look at uh, what's happened over the past going on four years now, this whole thing with the um, with the bug floating around, uh, which then led to this whole thing about uh, people getting vaccinations. Now, this is not a debate as to whether or not they were actually vaccines or not, because I know that, believe it or not, that's a question. Uh, <laughs> but I think the way that they went about encouraging people to do it, actually was counterproductive so when you think of vaccine uh let's test you luis what is a phrase you commonly heard in media and social media chapter to describe it
2: gosh uh the vaccine uh, I, it's so far <laughs> removed from my entire memory gosh you yeah. just brought me back too okay uh, yeah I've, I've i've wiped that out from my memory gosh well, yeah, I think I think I think a, a lot. Controversial, but I think
1: a lot of people have at this point because we've transitioned from pandemic to endemic. Uh, however, the jab—remember <laughs> that phrase, the jab. Well, here's the problem with that: in the United States alone, I'm not even counting the rest of the world. Just the United States, there are an estimated 50 million people, five zero million people, of which I'm one that live with varying degrees of trypanophobia, which is a fear of hypodermic injections, hmm. to the point where in more severe cases like the one I have, you can you can tell people they need to have their blood drawn or get a shot or something like that. And I could look at that and say, you know, this, this COVID, it has a 99.9993% success rate, and you want me to get this vaccine? The odds are I'm going to live so stick that needle somewhere else because you called it the jab and you brought out the trauma 50 million people but imagine if think about what we do in video games particularly modern video games you have the player and one way or another part of the quest is as often as not that they either pick up something walk through something or grab something that causes them to power up and become more invincible in their quests. Hmm. So imagine if we use instead the analogy of powering up. You uh, you get that you 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 pick up this power serum, and you infuse it in yourself, and now you're going to be able to walk through the world taller, stronger, more powerful, more impervious to bad things that could happen to you. Do you think it's possible? Can you at least see, if not for yourself, but at least see that this could have possibly increase compliance rates as
2: far as like entrepreneurship
1: as far as far as this as far as the analogy of people getting vaccinated
2: um yeah i you know i'm i'm not quite sure that i un- fully understand the vaccination and that well i'm i'm
1: I'm, 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 u- I'm using an analogy just to show the power of gamification Gotcha. That's yeah, what so- that that's what it is. So I was suggesting taking a gamification pro- approach to it, rather than a fear-based approach. You probably would have gotten a lot of people, more people taking it. So now right. let's go back to work and uh, let's look at how gamification makes learning and makes the jobs we do more fun. So project management system, for example. Uh, I have three things I recommend people consider when they choose their project management system, whether they use Monday or teamwork or a sauna or whatever, is that number one, it serves where you are now. Very important. Number two, it serves where you think you might be in six months to a year. Knowing that if you go through astronomical growth and uh, a better option comes along, you just transition to it. But knowing that you'll probably hold on to it at least for the next year. But here's the third one. It's got to be fun. Hmm. Because if people don't enjoy using it, They won't use it, and they'll put you in a situation where they can say, what are you going to do, fire me? No. So imagine that as a manager.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, when I I think about gamification, I think about, like, sales performance, um, I'm really looking at the opportunity to work with reps and establishing, like, what is it that motivates them to work beyond, you know, the, the nine to five for the day or to put in the extra effort. Um, and we incentivize based on that. So we'll look at opportunities to either like stack people in terms mm-hmm. of how many opportunities they generate for the week. Mm-hmm. You know, most opportunities generated for the month, you'll get you know, an iPad. Uh, most opportunities generated for the quarter, you know, we'll look at, you know, a voucher for, for travel or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, what we're looking is Uh, at the opportunity to incentivize the right behaviors that sense of motivation self-accountability and collaboration that yields that sort of revenue acceleration that a business is looking for. Yeah. Um, and so when we think about, you know, in the vein of entrepreneurship, um, it's not really like bait and switch or cat and mouse. You know, the idea no. is that you're leaning into those things that keep people happy and optimally productive um, and creating the systems and the games and the way of tracking performance um, to really, you know, again, establish like the right behaviors across the team.
1: Right. Here in Las Vegas, we have a company called Zappos, which yeah. most people have heard of. Now, I first heard about Zappos before I even moved to Las Vegas years and years ago when it was actually a very early adopter of online, you know, of online sales technology and internet sales to revolutionize how people buy shoes. Mm-hmm. I had heard a story about somebody who called Zappos and ordered a pizza and Zappos sent them a pizza. See, so you know what I did? I tried it,
0: <laughs>
1: and they sent me a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting to the point where I bring up Zappos in a second, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll bring the introductory point is when you have a great story behind it, mm-hmm. when you have the ability to have that type of fun, you become memorable. What other? I mean, there are a hundred thousand probably online retailers of shoes, but how many of them are going to send you a pizza if you call and order a pizza? Maybe maybe a couple that said, "Oh, Zappos do it. Let's try it." That's probably about it. But here's what I learned when I began to study Zappos and their actual their actual operations: is I found out that they would arrange the seating in their office so that the people who uh, so that the purchasers of the shoes, Mm -hmm. the you know the people who deal with the manufacturers and the people wanting to you know have their shoes featured on Zappos online online store, and the people who wrote the copy sat next to each other so although this isn't exactly what was going on it's almost like you had sales and marketing sitting next to each other Mm -hmm. and that leads to the first question which a lot of people don't get and this is where i want you to really clarify this for us sales and marketing those are two different things that's actually a surprise to some people but (laughs) not to us but explain to us the difference
2: Yeah, you know, the when you think about just like the order of operations within a business, first of all, there's product, you have to have something to sell. Then there's sales, right? You have to uh, have a process and a team that's dedicated to engaging customers operations is all about fulfilling those sales. And then you round out that business order of operations with marketing, which is they own the wheelhouse around attracting customers, um, owning the brand sort of voice and narrative and amplifying it so that there are more sales. And so there is a real, really strong handshake that happens between the sales and marketing team where Marketing is out there hosting events, running campaigns, producing content to generate interest in the product or services. They're bringing those leads forward to the sales team to then Mm -hmm. develop those relationships and yield sales. Um, So that handoff is really critical. And then that relationship and that definition of roles is very critical as well.
1: Right. So they have the purchasers sitting next to the copywriters Mm -hmm. simply so that there wasn't a whole lot of quote unquote telephone game. The copywriter. Could actually be on the call, and they would also be sitting right next to the purchaser, so they could write the copy then and there. And if they had questions about it, the purchaser was right there, yeah. and that purchaser could call back the manufacturer and say, "Our copywriter has a question."
2: Yeah.
1: So they were able to write, So the the goal of that was to be able to write better copy faster that had higher conversion rates and could be put up and get those shoes to market a lot faster.
2: Um. Yeah, Zappos is, I think, one of the best uh, sort of case studies around customer experience and even thinking about, you know, servant leadership as well. There are lots of examples and stories that I've heard in this vein of doing things entirely unconventionally and always with a very customer-centric approach.
1: Okay, so with all with all that, and thank you for sharing that, um, you know, you've seen changes in how sales works, And I think a lot of that's been driven by the internet and new ways that people consume information about products, get product recommendations, uh, receive advertising. So how does sales look different now as opposed to, say, five years ago or maybe 10 years ago?
2: Oh, wow. That's an excellent question. There are a couple of things that have happened that shifted the way that we do sales. Of course, the pandemic completely Um, uh, forced all of us to adopt self-paced buying experiences um, and uh, started to remove the sort of human element of the process. Um, And then there was a full pendulum swing in the other direction that happened thereafter, where people do want assisted buying experiences, but only at very specific instances during the buying process. And so the shift in sales is that we now have a lot more data about the buying process, the sort of behaviors, the time to consideration, the time from awareness of the brand to fully converting as a customer. We now have the systems and tools in place to completely analyze that and optimize the way that we create buying experiences around that. We also uh, started to see this emergence of video and personalized video as a way of selling. So imagine, if you will, you're going through an entirely automated process, and then at some point, a human, you know, sort of pops into the view, um, drops a video, looks in the Uh camera, says your name, and welcomes you to a a conversation to talk out your objections or concerns or hesitations about making an investment. And so suddenly, you're able to create that personalized and humanized experience at scale and and do so in a way that removes the friction from the buying experience because salespeople have a terrible reputation, unfortunately. You know, when we yeah. think about uh, so many professions out there that we, uh, you know, hail as heroes. And I think up until Aaron Brockovich came out, you know, lawyers were were bad people, right? And then we saw uh-huh. this one hero sort of element to being a lawyer. Uh, we have yet to see a hero element to being a salesperson. <laughs> and so people have an aversion to talking to people. They don't want to be pushed they don't want to be upsold or cross-sold and um, they don't want to be, you know, sold into something that isn't the right fit, right? I, I don't need the premium. I don't need the deluxe per se, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so when you can remove that sort of experience and and honor that our customers are a lot more educated than they used to be before they ever start sniffing around, um, you know, you're going to see a lot more success. But I think that's really the crux of the change is the pendulum went from, you know, human-centered experience to total automation. And now it's swinging back to humanization and personalization at scale.
1: Yeah. And when we hear humanization, we're now beginning to think of artificial intelligence and how we make artificial data and communications actually feel human. Yeah. So, I'm thinking, of it, I'm thinking of a story right now where maybe I began a sales process by interacting with live chat, which could be a human being or could be a very sophisticated bot. I really don't know at this point because it's gotten that good. So we're about two steps into it. I have a great uh, online chat with the company. They answer all my questions, and I leave it with I'm pretty interested, uh, need to think about it. And then the next morning, I get an email, and it's Luis Baez. <laughs> and it's and it's you with that you know with that very soothing, deep <laughs> resonant voice of yours, looking right into the camera, uh, with your friendly expression. People can go to your website and see you're a good looking guy, and uh, you're looking right into the camera. And you say, "Hi, Adam. I understood that you uh, communicated with our live chat yesterday, and wanted you to know that uh, I am here to help you. I, you know, and whatever else you want to say. I mean, whatever script you use, but uh-huh. just the fact that a human being was pinged." And actually showed up to join the conversation be, is a differentiator in this day and age. And it also allows you to focus on your higher value prospects because I was the person who went into the live chat and the algorithm showed that I asked thoughtful questions, that I expressed sincere interest in possibly becoming a customer, and I tripped off other algorithmic cues that showed that I had a very high score as far as somebody likely to convert. So mm-hmm. when you get your list of leads to follow up on, I'm up there near the top. So, you know, to speak with me first. Yeah. So it helps you close more deals as well.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the important thing you touched on, on the the AI piece as well, this is something that at the time of the recording of this conversation, it's still being defined, you know, yeah. so how, how is this? Is it friend? Is it foe? How do we leverage it? What's the right way to do it ethically, etc. But there's no denying that there is a real global critical mass against artificial intelligence and the sort of um, ethical use of it and the sort of misrepresentation or even the idea that people are being, you know, taken advantage of um, by persuasive language and things like that. And so I think the more that you can do to really validate and authenticate people's experiences, um, you know, beyond the assisted sort of chats and things like that, if people can make a really large investment and have a moment with another person and just make sure it's the right size, the right fit, the right color, the right timing, then you will see accelerated revenues compared to those people who lean exclusively on automation.
1: You know what I, what I used to tell people back in the day is uh, you want to test out whether your hosting company is going to be there when you have a product launch and your site crashes. Cause so many mm-hmm. people hit it at the same time yeah. before, before you invest in hosting there, test out their sales, and test out their tech support see mm-hmm. how it makes you feel
2: mm-hmm. certainly yeah that is definitely it um definitely making sure that there's confidence um but yeah i think you know we have to honor where people are as consumers um and i always say that you know i often we get into this rhetoric around b2b sales and the b2b buyer and you know who's who in the zoo and lining up all the executives and how do we communicate with them and make our plea I actually like to borrow playbooks from B2C sort of sales. And I like to think about the fact that whatever your title is, I'm still selling to a human. And whatever process, you know, the sales process might be, the decision to buy is an emotional impulse, right? Once you've lined up the facts, is the trust there? Is the confidence there to then make that investment? And so I really take a human-centered approach and I take my line of questioning a step further. So beyond, you know, going into a sales conversation and understanding what do you want? When do you want it? What have you tried? Who else are you talking to? Who needs to be involved? How long is it going to take to implement? I will then go a step further and ask the person, what's in it for you? It looks like you've been with the company for two years. Are you up for promotion? How can I help you shine? How can I make this be something that shines and stands out in your performance review next quarter? Yeah. right. I think that that deeper level of humanization of like, you're trying to do a job, you've got people to answer to just like I do, and being willing to go there and just connect human to human, that's where I've seen my success
1: agreed agreed so what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, you know go back to work so to speak and part of our conversation we're getting near the end of it so I want to make sure we spend time on this is the piece of it that has to do with the toxic cultures so Mm. entrepreneurship is great Uh, we spoke about the qualities of a great manager we looked at the evolution of sales which is very important it's the lifeblood of a business so Mm. and we also know that in order for uh, the sales team to be really good, uh, they need to have some of that entrepreneurial spirit that allows them to be creative, rather than just reading off scripts. That's just that's just the nature of things, particularly in our fast changing environment. So, uh, you know, you, you, know, I imagine you've had some experiences with great environments. You've had some experiences with toxic environments. Mm-hmm. So, you know, however you want to answer this. You know, what can somebody do if they have that entrepreneurial spirit? How can they progress and even thrive in a culture that's toxic to that type of energy?
2: Yeah, gosh, I've been there so many times throughout uh-huh. my career. And what I can say is that um, you never win alone in any situation. And those times where I wasn't getting buy-in, where people weren't giving me confidence And I ultimately didn't feel like I was being highly respected or regarded in the room. Um, I had to take different approaches, right? Because kicking and crying and screaming completely invalidates any intellect or any contribution to matter. And so I have to look at alliances. Amplification is honestly one of the best strategies that have helped me get visibility in my contributions. And so if I can find in that room two people or three people that can vouch for my work, can give credibility to the impact that i've made can call out those things that are left out from the meeting can mention whatever it is that i've done that hasn't been you know included um, or it can celebrate and applaud, or bring me in on projects. Right? Mm-hmm. Those allies are the way that we start to move the needle because we start to get away from, you know, this lack of confidence in me and what it is that I'm capable of. Instead, we're focusing on the results, and we're focusing on how we accelerated the results by being a team. That is how I've been able to navigate these spaces. Find your allies. And I think, you know, one of the unspoken sort of burdens of anyone in my position that is, you know, first generation, of color, out gay, et cetera, Uh um, you know, we're often not welcomed in the room. Um, We often have to, you know, develop thicker skin or be more courageous. in speaking up, I've gotten to a point in my career where I just don't even care who's right. I care about what's right. I stop being concerned with people's egos and I start leveraging data to justify the the recommendations that I make, because uh-huh. you can feel however you want to feel, but you can't deny the numbers. And oftentimes people are tripped up by my ability to leverage data. And so
1: yeah. um, that's,
2: that's been honestly, the, some of the ways that I've been able to overcome some of that toxicity is through alliance and leadership and, and leveraging data.
1: Well, you know, uh, you know, it's interesting and I think it's an unfortunate development that even with all the progress we've made in society, that uh, what I what I heard between the lines and tell me if I'm off on this is you still feel you have some othering going on, uh, you know, based on your on your ethnic background, based on, uh, you know, based on uh, being gay and everything else. And, um, you know, I myself, my friends call me a flaming heterosexual. (laughs) <laughs> so uh it took me a while to understand uh you know what that can be like to be uh marginalized to be discredited simply because I mean we'll just come out and say it there are people in the room who think you're either a sinner or a freak and that's mm-hmm. and that and that's that's not the case anyway you're just who you are you mm-hmm. you just you just do things and you live a lifestyle that um aligns with your authenticity and your integrity and mm-hmm. why why can't we respect that because it's you know as far as me you know having feelings about uh, people who are not heterosexual people who are who are not white or whatever you know the way i look at it is is um it's all good to me just uh don't put me down for being who i am and then when people bring up diversity i say i love diversity am i in the room as mm-hmm. long as I'm in the room, it's all good. In fact, in fact, that's how America was ultimately designed. Uh, that the idea was they call it the melting pot for a reason, that you put in different, uh, different elements, uh, different metals, different. Substances, which you know, you know, defines as people coming from different parts of the world with different cultural contributions, and you put it through a galvanizing process, and it creates something that is superior, um, something that is stronger as a composite than the individual sum of its components. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted, to, I just wanted to say that because that, you know, that means something to me right there. But I heard uh, something else you said when you said you never win alone. Now, have you ever been fired before? who hasn't exactly so and i and i mentioned earlier in this in this call i wrote a chapter about being fired uh did you know now now what was what now did you see it coming
2: um in one experience yes and another not
1: at all okay so so in the one where you saw it coming what were some of the clues whether you realize them at the time or you realize it looking back
2: yeah, you know, it was. It's always in the retrospect that the lesson is learned. Um, it ultimately had nothing to do with me or my capacity or capabilities, and it had everything to do with that person's conscious biases uh-huh. and their desire to replace me with their own person of their own choosing.
1: That was my experience at that company that I was fired from. Uh, the um, my my supervisor had hired somebody else who was basically a clone of herself, and uh, she went out of her way to promote that person over me and to make clear that I was always going to be in last place. Uh, Now what I also saw in that situation and also in situations when I worked for the larger company, when people were edged out is, you know, you say you never went alone. The reason that jumped out at me is because the common theme is you start to feel alone. Suddenly Mm -hmm. you're not invited to meetings. Suddenly your input doesn't really matter. Suddenly uh, the, and, and this is funny sometimes, when they used to care that you were at your desk at exactly a certain time, they don't care anymore. And you also get that sense that people are avoiding you. Yeah. They're not as friendly toward you, or they they find a way to just nod when they see you in the hallway instead of engage with you. And they know, they they and those other people, they know they can't quite put their finger on it, but they know for some reason that your days are numbered and it's in their best interest to not be seen as standing on a sinking ship yeah they often can't even articulate for themselves that's how insidious this is so what happens is the person who is you know who's being marginalized on the on the edge of being pushed out or fired uh they're being made to feel alone and and they may be told by some career coach, yeah, well, that's that's them telling you they're going to fire you. Get your resume up. Get some interviews going. Okay, that's, that's well and good. But, uh, but see, the counter to that and where we can bring entrepreneurship into the picture and give people the opportunity to feel that their work makes a difference is through not being alone, to have amplifiers, to have your allies who help you make your case.
2: Yeah, a thousand percent. And I think the way that you make your case with people who are naysayers or who have their own sort of bigotry or whatever that might be, right? The, the language in business is numbers and cash. And so if you aren't bought into the psychological safety of the people in the environment and their optimal productivity, you will be at the very least as a capitalist concerned with the quality of the product, and mm-hmm. the market performance, and so if there are holes in your product and services that make them, you know, um, not inclusive, uh, not accessible, mm-hmm. um, and and not ethically sourced or developed, et cetera, um, because you didn't include perspectives at the table, because the conversation was stale or everyone worked in a silo um, that ultimately sinks everyone's battleship. So if you're not going to be emotionally, you know, the emotional appeal of inclusion isn't there for you. Certainly the business case will be there.
1: You mentioned Aaron Brockovich earlier. Now you've seen the movie and do do you, and do you remember the, uh, do you remember one of the strategies that the, uh, I believe it was the power companies were using um, as part of their scheme to uh engaging their fraud and the damage they were doing to people
2: yeah they had them i remember there was like a door-to-door campaign
1: that was part of it but within but within that company they kept the departments at war with each other mm-hmm. and when i when i saw the movie the first time and i heard that phrase that like like whoa and th- and this was 20 years ago i saw the movie for the first time or like pretty soon after it came out it's like yeah that right there is going to obfuscate and really make it impossible to solve the problem and allow insidious things to be done essentially with impunity because when you have departments at war with each other ultimately they're just looking out for their own best interest mm-hmm. if one department won't go along with your program you just find one it will Yep.
2: yeah yeah and that's uh, to everyone's detriment
1: yeah absolutely so As we wrap up here, uh, somebody listening to this, and I'm going to uh, tell people where they can find you in just a second, uh, what is something that you would recommend somebody do right now with the information we've shared and anything that they may have found inspirational or at least helpful? One action they can take right now, one thought they can have, one intention they could set.
2: Yeah. Ooh, I think that if you walk away with nothing, please, please think about the notion of amplification and allyship. Think about that opportunity to elevate the sort of contributions and voices that are overlooked um, by being that person that shares the spotlight with someone else.
1: Yeah, I I think that has everything to do with it because that creates the platform for what we're creating. All right. So folks, Uh, You've heard Luis for almost an hour. You can see that he has got a lot of great things to say. And if you, like me, have felt a certain level of resonance with his knowledge and his ability to show you a new point of view, then I encourage you to visit his his website, which is www.luisbaez.com. I'll spell it for you in case you're just listening somewhere and don't have a pad of paper. It's L-U-I-S. B-A-E-Z, pretty much the way you would expect it to be spelled, LuisBaez.com. And you're going to find a lot of great things there. He's got a great blog. I've had a chance to scan through a little bit. You can discover more uh, about his work. Uh, He has a uh, sales and leadership academy that's, free as of this recording and if you listen to this three years from now and he's redone the website uh i guarantee you're going to find something else there that's just as good so uh you uh you can find a lot of great things there are also resources for salespeople if your actual interest and in what our conversations today had to do with optimizing your sales so essentially uh Luis is the creator of the revenue rescue plan And he has nearly two decades of experience with all the things that we've spoken about. He has worked with companies like, uh, oh my goodness, Google, Uber, Tesla, uh, some of the biggest companies uh, there. He has uh, spoken at Stanford, Berkeley, Bard. This is is somebody you certainly can gather at least a few pieces of knowledge from. (laughs) And if you choose to speak with Luis – just mentioned that you heard him on the Business Creators Radio Show. I love to know that I'm sharing the love. So again, that's www.luisbaez.com. And with that, Luis, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor, and believe me, in education.
2: Thank you so very much, Adam. I appreciate the time and the opportunity to chinwag with you and your people.
0: We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show.